friends, throughout the fall, we've had a series of messages that we have been focusing on questions that Jesus asked. Jesus, as we see in Scripture, he asked far more questions than he gave direct answers. Uh, Somewhere between 150 and 330, depending on how you punctuate the original Greek. As I've mentioned a few times, the original Greek not only had no punctuation, it had no spaces between the sentences, it often has no spaces between the very words. It's just you have to know the language and figure out from the context what is happening. But for all the questions that Jesus asked, there are a few occasions, very few, you can count them on one hand and have fingers left over, where Jesus directly answers questions. It's fascinating when this happens. We know it happened more often, but only a few are recorded for us in Scripture. Everything in Scripture is God-breathed. It's, it's perfect. It's what God wants for us to have to live our lives. It's the Word of God given to us. And in the midst of all of this, Jesus answers three questions. And the context and the meaning of those questions and the the events surrounding them are very meaningful. If you were in Sunday school today, we had a wonderful time together as we were in part four of a six-part journey in pursuit of Peter the Apostle. We're following uh, teachers as they speak on the life of Peter the Apostle from fishermen in Galilee. Uh, Today was the day of Pentecost and Peter seeing the gospel jump from Judaism into the, the Gentile world as God says, don't call any person unclean. The good news of the gospel is for everyone. Well, in the midst of this, we see, we, 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 we saw Peter uh, and his experience with Jesus. In the midst of that, we were talking about, uh, I've just lost my train of thought. I'm trying to, I'm trying to backpedal there and say, what was I going to say? I just, uh, well, it'll come to me. It'll come to me. Have you ever done that as you get older? It happens once in a while. It happens. But in the midst of all of this, we see the context of, of this passage. Oh, I know exactly what I was going to say. Had nothing to do with Sunday school. It just took place in that room where after, as we were discussing the video, I said, I wish I had time today. I, and I wish, it, maybe we could. If we have about three hours, we're going to miss the concert this afternoon and maybe a little of the skating, I would walk with you through this amazing chapter. Open your Bible to John chapter 9. Oh, I love the gospel of John. Every chapter has riches, and we see a new vignette from Jesus' life. But John chapter 9, we're only going to look at a few verses at the beginning of the chapter and right near the end. This chapter is all about the answer to the question the disciples ask and Jesus answers it directly a few of the questions that Jesus answers directly are from the 12 disciples his followers questions like why do you talk to the crowds in parables he answers that directly he answers questions directly often from his immediate followers but not from people like Pontius Pilate and others. He often answers those questions with other questions. He wants you to look within. Well, answers from Jesus, it's much shorter and it'll take us right up to the Advent season. The question today found in that wonderful chapter, John chapter 9, is this. We look at verses 1 and 2. They're in Jerusalem. That sets the place. 
As he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? That's the question. Who sinned? They wanted to know who was to blame. They saw something that was pitiable, that their hearts went out to. And so they asked this question, who sinned? Lord, look at this. Who sinned? They'd seen Jesus heal so many people, people with diseases that they caught somewhere, even terrible diseases like leprosy. Peter's mother-in-law, sick with a fever. She caught that illness. In the course of time, it likely would have gotten better. But Jesus healed her suddenly. He took a shortcut from disease to health. And we often see him do that. But in this case, it's congenital. A person was born lacking. This person had no sight Perhaps no eyes. We don't know. But it was very obvious that it was from birth. So it was obviously the eye sockets were likely sunken right in. And they could tell this person had never had eyes. And it was shocking. And the person was begging. Because in that society, without any social safety net, if your family did not have means to care for you as you became an adult, the only occupation open to you was to become a beggar. We see that again and again. The person who begged by the gate called beautiful in the temple that Peter and John healed. And this person was obviously well known. Most beggars in Jerusalem would have their spot that they would sit in day after day. And it was not shameful in a sense because people understood there was no welfare system and they also understood that in Judaism one of the duties of a religious person was to give charity to give alms to the poor and the needy and so this person kind of allowed people to show charity and love by being there but it was obvious this was beyond what normal healing was. Healing that could take place through medicine or could be sped up through Jesus healing a person. This person had no eyes, never had. So something had gone wrong and they wanted to place the blame, affix who it was, to understand why this tragedy had taken place and they asked the question, who sinned, his parents or him? Now, I asked the question about this question. Why, I would add, in the world, why in the world did the disciples ask this question? When I look at this painting, this is a painting of a little blind beggar boy. And I see that little boy. He took off one of his shoes for you to tuck money in. And he's sitting there with his little dog. I see that. And I don't start thinking theologically. I start feeling with my heart. I see that little guy. He's in such need. And you want to reach out and take him in your arms and and help him. But in this case, do you notice what the disciples don't do? They don't talk about mercy. They don't mention healing. Their minds go to a theological problem. They pose a theological problem problem to Jesus. (laughs) 
of all the questions he answers, this one's basically, you're asking the wrong question. He answers it, but it's not how they expect. Why did the disciples ask this question? Theologically, what were they thinking? I look at this little boy, and right away, I don't think, well, who am I going to blame? Was it his dad, his mom? Maybe him. Who am I going to blame? Why would they do that? Well, based on revealed Scripture in the Old Testament, we can see where their type of thinking came from. They understood the connection between illness, disease, poverty, lacking, death, darkness. They knew all of that came from one problem, and they got that part right. It came from sin. Before we sinned, we lived in a world of light, health, joy, life. Before sin. But the book of Genesis, we see that that ended. It said in the book of Genesis, we see the Lord God warning the man and the woman as he made them. It said in verse 6, the Lord God in chapter 2 of Genesis, the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat of it, you will surely die. Now we understand that death immediately is spiritual death. Death is separation. Separation, for instance, physical death is the spirit, the soul from the body. Spiritual death is separation from the creature, from our creator, the one who gives us all life. We're separated from them. We're divided by our sin. But that sin, friends, this great disaster in Genesis, we often overlook the enormous cosmic disaster it was. Scripture tells us that because of our sin, all nature groans awaiting, awaiting restoration in the last day. So this had an impact throughout nature, the fall of mankind. What was once light and life and health became Darkness, disease, and death. We were caught in this cycle of sin and death. Decay, darkness, disease, death. Kind of nice, they all start with D, but that's the life we live. From the moment we're born, we're on the way to the grave. We're mortal. We wear out. Our cells literally burn out from the inside out. Oxygen burns and the oxygen in us eventually consumes us. Ashes to ashes, dust to dust. What could stop that terrible cycle of darkness, decay, disease, and death? Only Jesus. And so the disciples knew that this disease was linked to sin. And this obvious physical lacking had to have a deeply sinful sinful cause we know that it's common to all mankind for instance the classic passage in romans chapter 5 we read that therefore just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin and in this way death came to all men because all sinned It's not when we're born if we will sin. It's only a matter of when. 
Because we're born naturally of sinful race. We have sinful parents. We come by it naturally. The natural man is a sinful state. It's not if. It's only when. And we understood that based on Scripture. Remember the King David when he was praying and repenting after his great sin with Bathsheba and the murder of her husband. Psalm 51 speaks of his repentance. And in that psalm, he reflects on his sinfulness, that he's always been a sinner. It's always a struggle to do God's will. He says in verse 5 of Psalm 51, Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. I love that picture. That little kid. Where did he learn to be a little sinner? Where did he learn to be a little stinker? Obviously, dad. That's what the moms are all saying. (laughs) Yeah, obviously. Oh, no. We don't have to teach them that. Oh, we know they're accountable before God at a much later time. In Jewish culture, your accountability, your bar mitzvah was around the age of 12 where you begin to understand the consequences of your actions. But that seed, that darkness, decay, death, disease is planted in us naturally. And so the disciples were reflecting that understanding. In fact, for much of the Old Testament, because God had spoken early on that the effects of sin can have echoes and repercussions in a family for generations, the punishment of sin is often built into it. You make these sinful choices and you reap the fruit of that. And families see that. For instance, in the Old Testament, a man would lead his family away from God and they would become idol worshipers. For generations, the sin of the father would negatively impact the children. But it got to the point where people felt that left them off the hook. That no, I'm not responsible for my sin. That was obviously an ancestor above me. But God reveals to the prophet Ezekiel, do not quote that proverb any longer they used to say, yeah, a dad would eat sour grapes and it would, would put his kids' teeth on edge. They would feel the sourness. What it says, God speaking through the prophet Ezekiel says, what do you people mean by quoting this proverb about the land of Israel? The father eats sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. As surely as I live, declares the Sovereign Lord, you'll no longer quote this proverb in Israel, for every living soul belongs to me, the Father as well as the Son. Both alike belong to me. The soul who sins is the one who died. The soul who sins sins is the one who will die. The prophet clearly reveals that we are all accountable for our sin. It's our sin separates us from God. And yet, that thought persisted. So the disciples look at this pitiable blind person. And they think, who sinned? His sin must have been terrible. But if he was born blind, I don't know how he could have sinned. Probably his parents. Must have been punishment to them. Now, just briefly as an aside, we understand that God can use difficult situations in life to bring us closer to Him, to bring us back to Him. For instance, in Hebrews chapter 12, we're told because God loves you as a father and any loving parent disciplines his children to bring them on the right track, God will often allow discipline to come into our lives. 
difficulties, sometimes resulting from our sinful actions, that will turn us back to the Lord. And yet, Jesus looking at this person, and they're wanting to affix blame, basically says you're asking the wrong question. Because as we look next, Jesus tells us that it's not about who sinned. It's not about who sinned, but why he'll be healed. (laughs) They were wanting to ask the who. Who, what, where, when, why. Jesus says, you're asking who. You should be asking why this is going to happen. Because Jesus has every intention of doing something that is clearly miraculous, clearly impossible. Healing a man born blind. He's going to do it. And he says, you're focused on the wrong thing. So his direct answer as we come to it back in John chapter 9, his direct answer to that question, who sinned, the parents or this man born blind? Verse 3, Jesus says, neither. Wrong question. Jesus says, neither this man nor his parents sinned. Jesus isn't saying this is a sinless man. He's saying don't link a specific sin to his condition. He says that's not yours to do. That's not even yours to ask about. Neither. His condition is not due to a grievous sin that's being punished by himself or his parents. Jesus says neither. And what he says is that this man is part of my mission. Every lost soul is part of my mission. Remember, Jesus actually told us why he came. The Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. The good news of the gospel. That's the good news. Salvation through Jesus. And this blind man was not only lost in sin, but he was physically reflecting that fallen state. Remember, sin leads to Darkness, decay, disease, and death. They're all the result of our fallenness. And Jesus' goal is salvation, to overcome death with life through faith in him. But along the way, in his ministry, he always reversed the effects of sin. One of those is lacking, hunger. He fed the multitudes. And whenever they came to him for physical healing, he would oblige He rewarded their faith with healing and health. He pushed back the frontiers of sin in their lives. But I dare say the vast majority of people who Jesus physically healed weren't saved, did not accept him as their Messiah and their Savior. We know that he healed multitudes But when he began to teach of putting your faith in him and getting life from him, those difficult teachings John reveals like my, you must, you must eat my body. You must drink my blood. He's saying you need to have me inside of you in your heart. He was speaking spiritually, but he offended them, their sensibilities, and they rejected him. Even the ones he healed, they walked away in unbelief. But Jesus is on the gospel trail. He wants this young man, because we know he was of age. His parents said, look at him, he's of age. That means he's over 12 or 13, but he's still under the care of parents at this time. We know that Jesus wanted him saved. 
but he heals him as well as one of the effects of our fallenness. And Jesus explains that as he continues. He says, neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. As long as it's day, we must do the work of him who sent me. Night is coming when no man can work the work of him who sent me. I came to seek and save the lost. He's saving them, pushing back the effects of sin physically. He's dispelling the darkness with his teaching. He's enlightening them. But he wants ultimately salvation. Jesus says he is at work. And you know he always, he didn't hide his agenda. At the very beginning, at the outset passages in the Gospels, Jesus tells us that this is what he's come for. For instance, Matthew 4.23, we see his method. says, Jesus went throughout Galilee teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, salvation, the gospel, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. He doesn't want people lost. He doesn't want people hungry. He doesn't want people sick. He doesn't want people deluded and living in darkness and lies. He wants to shine his light. He wants to see restoration in mankind. Ultimately, that only comes through salvation. But the work of him who sent me, it's gospel work. And friends, I love to see it reflected in the lives of our missionaries like Paul and Sharon and Julie Stone and others. They want salvation. But along the way, they feed, they clothe, they bring health through medicine. They're doing the work of Jesus. And that's not just missionaries. That's us here. What role do you play in your family, your community, your workplace, your school? You need to continue the work of Jesus. I love that, na- that word for work in Greek. Jesus says, I'm here to do the work of my Father. The work in Greek is ergon. You know when, how you work, if it, you work well and it's efficient, that's called the study of ergonomics. That's a good Greek word. Ergon, the work of our Father, is gospel work. Preaching, healing, ministering, clothing, feeding, That's why Christians throughout two millennia, we have always led the charitable works in society. The great disaster is in the late 1800s and early 1900s, the governments of the West stepped in and said, you've started it well because all of the social services were Christian in nature. And then the government took over, did a terrible job, and many Christians backed off and quit doing the work of our father. Again in Luke chapter 4 Jesus talks about that. He said he went to Nazareth. Look at the language he uses about the work of his father. He went to Nazareth where he'd been brought up and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue as was his custom. He stood up to read the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it he found the place where it's written. The spirit of the Lord is on me. Because he anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind. To release the oppressed. To proclaim 
the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began by saying, Today, the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. You see? He came as the Messiah. He came as the Savior. But along the way, he pushed back all the effects of sin. Light in darkness. Sight for the blind. All of these were signs of what direction God was heading. The great restoration and rescue of a fallen race. To be restored to fellowship with God. These were the works of Jesus. That's why his healing ministry was hand in glove with his preaching ministry of the good news of the gospel. The feeding, the hungry, and the healing, the sick, that was, that was an object lesson. That was a physical manifestation of the good news of the gospel, reversing the effects of sin. Well, if they should have been asking the why about the healing and the work of the Father instead of the who and sin about this blind man. The Pharisees come on the scene. Chapter 9, as we go through it, it's it's like one of those old mystery shows. The detectives show up. In this case, the detectives are the Pharisees. A crime has been committed. A man has been healed on the Sabbath. And they heard that Jesus did it by spitting in the dust, making the spittle into clay, And putting it in the man's eyes and telling him to wash in the pool of Siloam. So many crimes have been committed. It was illegal in Judaism at that time. The Pharisees taught it was illegal to spit on the Sabbath because the spittle would roll in the dust, make a furrow. You're plowing, you're farming on the Sabbath. All of these things. They had so many rules and Jesus just broke them all. And so they're prosecuting Jesus through this man who's been healed miraculously. A great testimony to everyone. And they ask the question again and again and again, how were you healed? How were you healed? The question is not how he was healed. They should have asked, who healed you? They wanted to know the how. They wanted the details for prosecution, but they should have been asking the who. Four times in the chapter 9, they ask how. The neighbors ask, how are you healed? The Pharisees come and they ask a question, how are you healed? They go to his parents, they say, how was he healed? They say, he's of age. They were afraid of the Pharisees. They were kicking people out of the synagogue for believing in Jesus. So they went back to the man again, how are you healed? They ask him four times. And over the course of those questioning, this man who knew Jesus from nobody at the beginning, he was just a disembodied voice to this man and a name Early on in chapter 9, they're asking the how question. And he says, I don't know, a a man called Jesus did it. You see where he starts? He's not a believer, not a follower. This is just a man called Jesus. And then it goes on. The Pharisees are asking him, "How, how could this have happened? How were you healed? And he says, the man must have been a prophet. A prophet? And then the Pharisees get real upset. They say, no, we follow a prophet. Moses is our prophet. And they begin to intensify their persecution of the man and his parents, and they begin to threaten him. (laughs) And the man says, you're asking so many questions. Do you want to be his followers too? Do you want to become his disciples? And that really makes them mad. And he says, because this man healed me, God answered his prayer, and God will not answer a sinner's prayer. You say he's a sinner, but I say he's a man from God. 
So it goes from a man called Jesus to a prophet to a man from God. And then finally, after he has been persecuted and thrown out of the synagogue, ostracized from the community, Jesus finds him. He hears what's happened, and he comes back to him. Comes back to him, and he makes that final step from physical healing, pushing back the effects of sin, to now salvation. That journey from a man called Jesus to the Son of Man, the Son of God, Messiah, Savior, and Lord. Right at the end of John chapter 9, we see Jesus finds the man, and Jesus puts a face to his voice as he meets him. It says in verse 35, Jesus heard they had thrown him out. And when he found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He's now talking about faith and salvation. Who is he, sir? The man asked. Tell me so I may believe in him. Jesus said, You have now seen him. In fact, he's the one speaking to you. He's speaking with you. And the man said, Lord. He took Jesus as his Lord. His faith is now in Jesus. He says, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. An incredible story. Incredible story. So much more than a simple healing. A man blind from birth. And through the work of his father, pushing back the boundaries of the effects of sin, this man comes to saving faith in Jesus. And the work that Jesus did then, it continues today. It continues in people like Paul and Sharon and Julie Stone. But friends, it has to continue in your life as well. The ergon, the work of the Father is now ours. Remember what Jesus says in John chapter 14? He says, I tell you the truth. Anyone who has faith in me will do what I have been doing. He will do even greater things than these because I'm going to the Father. And Jesus always said, when I go to the Father, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit to give you power. Literally in Greek, it's not my favorite translation in the New International Version, that he will do what I have been doing because the Greek word directly translated, Jesus says, the works I do he shall do <laughs> the ergon, the work of the Father to seek and save the lost, to push back upon the effects of sin. The work I do, he shall do even greater. Jesus spoke to thousands by the Holy Spirit, modern technology. A man like Billy Graham spoke to millions led far more to saving faith than Jesus did in his earthly ministry. The work I do, you will do. Some of you do even greater works. Can you imagine? The thousands Jesus healed through Christian doctors and nurses, health care, as well as God answering prayer and healing divine. Millions find health and healing through the church today. The work I do, you shall do. Jesus says the, the work to seek and save the lost, the work of the gospel continues today. And friends, 
It gets to be a dark world, and sometimes we want to throw up our hands, but look at the world Jesus lived in. Not that much different. And we need to seek and save the lost, to feed the hungry, to clothe the cold, to reach out and see healing and health come to the sick. All of this we do as the work of Jesus through us. And we do it until the end. All of this is moving toward the great restoration. The book of Revelation shows us glimpses of the future. And one of those I love is in chapter 21 of Revelation. The picture of the new Jerusalem. The end result. God at home with his people. Verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men. And he will live with them. And they will be his people. And God himself will be with them. And be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things passed away. No more disease, no darkness. There is no sun or moon for Jesus is the light of the city. No darkness, no disease, no decay ever knew and no death. This is what we are heading toward. But along the way, we're called to do the work of Jesus. Some people say, preach, preach. Don't make medical clinics. It's all the same thing. It's all the good news. It's all of a part. Jesus says, this is the work the Father gave me to do. Push back on darkness. That's why we have schools. Push back on decay. That's why we build new buildings and renew people's lives and homes push back on disease. This is why our medical ministries, our prayer ministries are so important. And push back on death. The good news of the gospel. Jesus says, those who believe in me, even though they die, yet will they live. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I thank you, Lord, for the amazing story that came from a single question. While the disciples, they saw this man as a curiosity, and they wondered theological thoughts about who might have sinned, what caused that terrible tragedy to be born blind, where Jesus wanted them to be in tune with the work that you were doing in him and through him, and would continue through the body of Christ in the world today. The work of the gospel, to preach the good news of the kingdom, and to feed the hungry, and to heal the sick to visit those in prison, to be Jesus in all of these places as he lives in us and through us. Father, touch our hearts today. Open our eyes to how we can share the good news of the gospel, not only with our voices, but in practical ways with our actions and with our attitudes. Father, this is so important, so much a part of what our lives need to be. And I pray that you would speak to us and empower us today. We pray all of this in Jesus' loving name. Amen.